And at the time when Atomic Family is happening, you know, people are concerned about duck and cover drills and children being warned about nuclear war in school, but that never happened. Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so happy to welcome Sierra Horton McElroy, author of the novel Atomic Family. It works. For, it, it took me a long time to accept this process because I'm so stubborn. I was like, I can fix it. But I just found that I write so fast, it's actually easier for me to just start over, and it's a better book. Sierra Horton McElroy is a shamelessly multi-passionate creative. She's worked as a collegiate writing instructor, a consultant for film campaigns, a journalist on Capitol Hill, a photographer and painter, and a fiction writer, among other ventures. Sierra was raised in Orlando, Florida, and holds a BA from Wheaton College and an MFA from the University of Central Florida. Her work has appeared in Agni, Bridge 8, Iron Horse Literary Review, the Crab Orchard Review, and Saw Palm, among others. Today, I'll be talking to her about her debut novel, Atomic Family. Okay, I want to start with your characters, Nellie, Dean, and Wilson, because the novel alternates between those different points of view. So could you just give us an introduction to, to each one of your characters? Of course. So the book opens with Nellie. She is an embittered housewife. Um, The main reason she's feeling dissatisfied with her life is that her husband, uh, Dean, uh, is a scientist at a top secret nuclear bomb plant outside town, and she's fed up with it. She does not like what she calls the, you know, the fourth and silent member of their family, which is the top secret work and that she can never know what her husband does all day. It makes her feel Um, stupid. It makes her feel small. She is not able to share his world, which she considers to be big and important and masculine. And she's stuck with, um, you know, the drudgery of day-to-day life and she's, she's over it. And so what happens pretty early on is that she decides to team up with some of the women in town and participate in a anti-nuclear march, which becomes really tricky because it's led by women whose husbands work at the plant. So they're not really just protesting on ideology. And then we have Wilson, who honestly is my favorite character in the book. I feel like I found his voice first and so much of the book came around him, but he is the 10 year old little boy. He's their son. And he believes like with every fiber of his being that there are communists hiding out in his town and he will find them. So he is prowling, he has his gear, you know, he's he's on the hunt and 
He also just deeply believes that nuclear war is coming. He has bought into the propaganda that was fed to American children, um, everything from duck and cover drills to, you know, all of the cartoons and, and media that was given to not only kids, but just the American family in general about impending disaster. And then we have Dean, who is a soil scientist who works at uh, the Sterling Creek plant, which is a um, atomic bomb facility outside town. And he has a sneaking suspicion that something is not right. And so he's going to work um, very, very concerned about some of the environmental consequences of the work that's been going on and that he has been signing off on for years. You mentioned the Sterling Creek plant that he works at, and I'm curious, both the town and and the plant, What is is there a real town and a real um, facility that the, the novel is based off of? There is. Um, I made the decision to change the names, you know, because it's a novel and I wanted some freedom to fictionalize some, some things, but it's inspired by the Savannah River plant. Um, which is based outside the town of Aiken in South Carolina. And my grandfather was a scientist there in the Cold War. Okay. What did your grandfather do? So he was a soil scientist. He uh, worked in what was called the health physics department. And um, he studied uh, various aspects of the disposal and containment of nuclear waste and so when I started researching this book, I found that incredibly fascinating. It's not something we ever really think about. And, um, you know, most Cold War books that I've read about focus on um, more like the development of the atomic bomb and the physicists. But here is a scientist who studies dirt and his work is very important, too, because we have all of these, um, you know, <laughs> thousands of pounds of nuclear waste and not really a great plan on what to do with it. And I discovered that um, in many cases, we just buried it in the ground and said, well, it'll probably be fine. <laughs> and a lot of times it was not fine. And so Dean, you know, is just beginning to realize the consequences of this work that he's been part of for a long time, right? Which is the burial um, and containment of nuclear waste in unlined trenches in the ground. So during your research, have you learned more about what those consequences are? The The Savannah River plant changed its tone in like the 70s and 80s and basically realized that they've done a lot of bad things <laughs> and a lot of it unintentionally. I want to be careful when I say that, like a lot of the times they didn't really know because the science was so new. So now their entire goal is environmental containment. Um so in many ways, they're trying to like backtrack what they have done and actually have made great progress on that front. Um, but that's because they realized it in time. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think that's probably true of a lot of new technology and a lot of you know, science that we're constantly trying to figure out. Uh, well, why don't you give us a better idea of, of the mindset of your characters as far as what the political and historical context was like for them? Sure. Well, let's start with Nellie. I think that she's really complicated. I wanted a really complicated 1960s housewife character, especially because we've seen, you know, housewife characters before. Like, I mean, Mad Men, I'm thinking of lots of different novels and film portrayals. Um, and I wanted her to be 
both captivated by and a little bit ambivalent toward the political opportunities coming her way, right? So um, just for more context, there is a, you know, the the women's movement that she joins, the anti-nuclear protest is called Women's Strike for Peace. This was a real grassroots political and social movement led by women and in many ways was considered one of the early front runners to second wave feminism. The reason being that it empowered housewives to use their political voice and power as housewives. Not saying you need to like leave the home, but in your role as part of the home, you have an important voice in the political sphere. And so what happened was these women, you know, marched with their babies. They marched with their aprons. That was part of the message. Because keep in mind, this is 61. We're right out of the 50s. This is the reality for many, if not most women in the U.S. at this time. And it's it basically empowered them to come as they are, right, and show up and still, you know, let your voice be heard if you have a concern. And in this case, the concern was the threat of nuclear war and how it's affecting our children, right? Our kids are afraid. We're concerned about fallout in milk. And obviously kids drink milk. This is a problem. And that's why these women were protesting. Now, there is a character in the book who is incredibly idealist. Her name is Myra. She's leading the protest. And I think that she is driven by the political message. She she wants to be there because of the concept, the ideology of what they're marching for. Nellie isn't really like that. And I didn't want her to be this perfect, fiery, you know, feminist. She is a little bit of an anti-hero. I think she's showing up really for personal reasons to spite her husband um, and because she's bored and that's why she's there. And I think that that's very believable. So I wanted her um, not to be this overly perfect and ambitious, you know, feminist voice. Cause I don't think that that's always the believable answer, even if we kind of want to read that character sometimes. So I threw it in there <laughs> for fun, but I think that Nellie's response to the political freedom coming her way is kind of ambivalence, to be honest. So that's a big one in the book. Um, as far as Dean goes, he, I think Dean is concerned about what the political realities will mean for him in a really personal way. Like, am I going to lose my job if I speak up? Because we have to remember this is post McCarthy. This is when there still is heightened sensitivity to anyone having communist sympathies. But at the same time, the U.S. kind of considered anything that was unpatriotic was also pro-communist at the time. So if Dean is going to voice concern about what's happening at the atomic bomb plant, he's concerned that he could not only lose his job, but much worse could happen. So the political realities of the era and the Cold War for him are so centralized to his work and his work life. Yeah, so there's, there's definitely a lot at stake. I, I want to go back to Nellie. You talk about these women's marches do you think that was a precursor to the, the women's movements of the 1970s? Oh, I definitely do. Um, and it is talked about in that way as kind of a front runner. It was um, the largest gathering of women since the suffrage movement. It was a really huge deal that, you know, this many women across the country in their own cities marched at the same day, same time. Um, but I think that difference is that it equipped women to come as they were as housewives. And I, I think down the road, 
there was more, um, more of a wake up call, like can women challenge their roles in more profound ways, but women strike for peace allowed women to come as they were as housewives, right? Um, they didn't have to change anything in order to gain a political voice. They already had it. And that is something I really appreciate about the movement. Can you talk about how much this history that you're writing about relates to today? And I'm kind of thinking in a, in a way that they say that everything changes and yet everything remains the same. So how is the, the, the what we're living through today, how is it both alike and different from the world of Nellie Dean and Wilson? Yeah, well, I'm going to answer this actually from a personal standpoint. And like, I think that there's so much about, you know, Ukraine and like big picture things that are, you know, similar, but um, I'm going to bring it back to, I think, what feels most close to home for me, which is gun violence in schools. So there is a women's, well, it's more than women's now, but a women's advocacy group called Moms Demand Action. And in many ways, it's very similar to Women's Strike for Peace. It's moms who are fed up and say, you know, we don't want our children to die in school. Like school is where they are supposed to learn. And it's this whole advocacy chain. And they have a, they have huge capital now and huge, you know, growth and voice. And it's a, it's a grassroots movement, much like Women's Strike for Peace. But the, the pathos behind it is that their mother's concerned for their children. And I am a young mother. I have a two-year-old son. And, you know, the fact that we have to be concerned about safety at preschool is horrifying. And there was just, a, you know, a shooting at a high school in St. Louis where I live just a few weeks ago. Um, these are realities for, for our children and for our cities. And at the time when Atomic Family is happening, you know, people are concerned about duck and cover drills and children being warned about nuclear war in school, but that never happened. You know, we, we, we spent all this time and money preparing for this great nuclear apocalypse with the USSR. Like the U.S. government did respond and take steps for this preventative measure. But I don't see any real change happening right now for something that is an active problem, which is shootings in not only schools, but so many places around the U.S. So I think that there is a lot of similarities, um, especially when I think about the political role of women's voices and in particular mother's voices and responding to these issues that affect their children. You made a really good point, And it kind of reminds me of how difficult it is to deal with mental health these days and especially the mental health of our young people. I, I happen to work in a high school and, you know, this makes me think a little bit of Wilson and what he goes through in the story. Um, do you think that, issues such as gun violence is, is is what's contributing to this, you know, the same kind of um, circumstances that, that Wilson might have gone through, except in a different way? Yeah, I think it's very similar in an important question. I just read an article about children from Uvalde who like can still not go back to school because of course, like they just saw their friends die right beside them. It's just an unthinkable reality. Um, I think that in Atomic Family, Wilson has mentally lived in that space for so long. He's imagined it because he's been told to imagine it because of the media and the propaganda and reading things he really shouldn't be reading, you know, that he gets a hold of. Um, 
but it is much more acute and different for people who've actually lived it and seen violence invade a space that should never see violence, like a school, some somewhere that should be a safe space for children. So I think it definitely, definitely is there. Well, I want to switch gears um, to your journey as a writer. Um, when I ask you that, I, I kind of picture your whole life flashing before your eyes. So you can start wherever you want, but tell us a little bit more about uh, your journey as a writer. Oh, sure. I'd love to. I am one of those writers who wanted to write forever. I mean, I was writing as like a six-year-old, seven-year-old. I started my first quote-unquote novel at 11, and it was this historical fiction novel. It was set, I think, in 1904. It was a love story. I was very into the classics. Like To me at the time, it was like, we read Jane Eyre, and we read Pride and Prejudice. Like this is this is true literature, and that's what I wanted to write. Um, so I was writing historical fiction from the very beginning. Um, the first time I tried to sell a novel, it was an interracial love story set in the South, um, and I was trying to place it actually with a Christian publishing house. And I was told, you know, this is a little controversial for us. And we think you are a good writer, but go write Amish fiction and come back. This is a completely true story. And I was so mad. I was like, what is... Wait, they, what they is literally Amish? told you to write Amish fiction? Amish fiction. They said you are a good writer, but you know, this interracial thing is too, it's too controversial for us. And I was, I was just dumbfounded. And I think it just made me question so much about publishing and, you know, trends and just trying to repeat trends and so many things. So um, I was trying at the time to be like a teen published author. I think I was 16 trying to sell this book. Looking back, very glad that didn't happen, you know, because now I have what is a much better novel coming out as my debut because I gave it time. But um, I learned a lot by being uh, a writer who was writing from a very young age I started Atomic Family in college. It was actually a short story collection. Um, I loved the book Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout. It's actually what's called a novel in stories. So it's a short story cycle, but also kind of a novel. And I tried to kind of do something like that. It didn't really work, but there was one story in there called The Place Called Morning. And it was about a father and son building a fallout shelter. And I was like, this is it. This is what the book is. And it, it, it moved me because I, there was a line in there, something like the, the little boy says, oh, father, you know, like, will this keep us safe? Like if a bomb comes and the dad goes, sure, you know, of course he knows that no, it really won't. It's all this game that they're, they're doing. Um, and that image is what really brought the book to life for me. So I rewrote it as a novel in my MFA. So what about um, the actual writing process for you? You've already mentioned you're uh, you know, a working mother. Um, how do you fit it into your schedule? When do you fit it into your schedule? Tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, I had a lot more time before the baby was here. <laughs> That's true. Um, honestly, most of the book was written before my son was here, which helped a lot in my current situation. Um, my process is that I'm a very, very fast drafter. Like I think I drafted the first version of Atomic Family as a novel in two and a half months. And 
that's just how it has to be for me. I have to be so deeply in the world. I just get it out. And um, in that sense, I'm not the biggest plotter. I have to think about characters and theme and just momentum. And then when I go back and revise, I usually revise from scratch. Like I didn't look at that first draft at all. I rewrote it again. And that time I was much slower. The reason I do it like that is that I already have the book and the characters in my head. And now I know what I really want to say. The first draft is like a discovery draft for me. You know, I'm figuring out what is my real question? Who are my characters? And then a lot of it's not going to make it into the next book at all. Um, and that's just what has worked for me. So I wrote Atomic Family very, very quickly and then revised it for a long time. Can you clarify that for me? So you, you say you write the first draft and then you just write from write again without looking at the first draft? That's right. So I wrote the first draft in about two, two months, three months, and I workshopped it and got all these notes. And then instead of trying to fix it, I just started over. That's amazing. I, it works. For, it, it took me a long time to accept this process because I'm so stubborn. I was like, I can fix it. But I just found that I write so fast. It's actually easier for me to just start over and it's a better book and I'm not starting at the wrong place. You know, I'm not fixing something that is broken. I'm just writing what I really want to write. And now it's a better book. Um, and I, I do really heavily rely on the workshop process. I have readers who are also writers. And I think that that's important for me. They're betas who know craft really well and know what I want the book to say. And so I just deeply trust their notes too. And I think that that's also really important for my process. Well, I don't know if I'll ever try that, but it, it makes sense because that first draft after you get it workshopped is so, so messy. It's just painful to look at. So I can imagine maybe it's a little less stress to just, you know, yeah, just start writing again. For me, it is because it's, I love the generative stage, you know, it's also just more fun to be back in the creative world. And then it just takes on a new life of its own when you're back in scene and you decide, oh, you know what, what if this happened? And then you can, because you're, <laughs> you're writing it fresh. Uh-huh. So how about publishing? You said you started writing this, I think you said in college. And so that's a long journey. I won't reveal how old you are, but you know, it's, it's, it's a very long process. Um, at what point did you put, put the manuscript down and start identifying agents and publishers and querying? And how long did that take you? So my story is actually a little weird because I found interested agents before the book was done. There are very few ways to do this. I know a lot of people do like PitMad on Twitter, but um, I did something called the Writer to Agent program at AWP. So I was still in my MFA program. I had just workshopped the novel and I had like the first 50 pages rewritten at this point. Um, and I felt really good about it. And it's actually pretty close to what's now in the current book. And um, I submitted it through the Writer to Agent program at AWP, which by the way, is the Association for Writers and Writing Programs. They have a conference every year that I pretty much always go to. And um, I had two agents reach out to me from that and say they wanted to meet me in person, which is huge because typically when you query, you never see the agent in person before you sign. You know, that's 
that's just unheard of. I actually have not seen my agents in person since we signed several years ago. <laughs> you just always work over email. And um, that not only gave me the contacts that I needed to actually query afterward, but it gave me the confidence to know this book will sell because even the first 50 pages got me two different agents interested. And we met in Portland, Oregon at AWP. They talked through why they liked the book, what their hopes were for it, how they saw it fitting in the marketplace. And it just gave me a whole different vision for it and helped me know, you know, this is not just a passion project. Like they see this as a published book. And so suddenly I was like, well, now I got to finish it so I can deliver it. And then I queried those agents I had already met. And that's how I signed so quickly because they remembered me. You know, we had already met in person. And then, you know, from there, um, how, what was the process like getting it from an agent to a publisher? So, um, you know, we went through our own edits uh, internally with the agency. And I'm so glad, I mean, they made the book just so, so much better. And I, I wanted an agent who would be editorial in that way. Um, one of the less fortunate things at the time was that we first went out on submission to publishers in March of 2020, which turned out not to be a great time for like all of humanity, right? So, I mean, we had people interested and then my agents were like, everyone is not doing anything in New York. I mean, like no one is like... Everyone was just concerned we're all going to die. And so basically, we made the difficult decision to pull the book from submission for about a year. Um, and that was hard, hard at the time because I waited so long. But I'm so glad. And for so many reasons, especially with a book like this, um, you know, I just it was I, I wanted to give it the chance it deserved to find the right publishing house. And so we waited, went back on submission and it sold to Blair on our next round after we went back on and I'm so happy with them. They've been a great team to work with. Well, that's, that's fantastic. I, you know, I'm sure a lot of writers were ready to submit around that time. And, um, yeah, it's just, it was a, another obstacle and, you know, as a writer, there's enough obstacles as it is, but good for you for sticking with it. And, and, you know, eventually making this, your manuscript, you know, a, a reality, yeah, it took a it took a village and then some. I mean, a lot of people are involved in the publication and um, you know making of a book. So I'm so thankful to everyone, including my agents, my editor. I mean, the cover designer. I mean, it's so many people. And it you're right. It also just took the right place at the right time, the right people, and we just did not have that in March of 2020. Well, there's there's a lot more um, I'd love to talk to you about, but. Um, I do want to wrap it up. So before I, before we go, can you tell me a little bit about Clover and Bee Communications? I would love to. So my day job is that I run a communications consulting agency and, uh, you know, we, we specialize in digital marketing, messaging campaigns. Uh, I do copywriting services. Um, right now I'm working with, um, Kingdom Story Company and Lionsgate on their new film, Jesus Revolution, which comes out in theaters in February 2023. Um, so yeah, I work on film campaigns. I work with nonprofits and um, do strategic communications and messaging. And I love it. It's great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I did go, I did look at the website and, and, and it looks like you have some wonderful services that, that you offer. 
so what are you working on now? What's next? Fiction-wise, um, I am working on a book about the ghost of Jack Kerouac. Um, it is currently with the readers. I'm very excited about it. Um, it's actually interesting from a process standpoint because I started it as a short story and then decided this is really a novel, which is kind of what I did with Atomic Family. So that might just be like my thing, you know? <laughs> I test it, you know, like, do I like this? before I commit to 300 plus pages. Um, yeah, I'm very excited about it. It's a contemporary book uh, and we follow a young struggling MFA student. So it is a book about writing, which is tough to do in a fresh way, but I'm really excited about it, um, especially for people who are fans or maybe like kind of fans of the beats, which I tend to be in that category of appreciating people like Jack Kerouac, but also just having many questions. So if you're in that space, then, then you'll like it. Yeah. I think, I think writing about writers is, is there's a lot to unveil, a lot to discover about who they are. So I think that sounds like a very fascinating project. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. And I think I wanted a writer character who felt authentic. We all see writer characters that are just moody with their notebooks, you know, and like that just doesn't feel real most of the time. And I wanted someone who remembered like the Scholastic Book Fair and who wants to write YA and just feels like your normal 21-year-old hopeful writer who you see on Instagram. And that's that's the kind of voice that I wanted the main character to have. Well, Sierra, um, thanks so much for joining me and congratulations on Atomic Family. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. like to change this question (laughs) okay um this is tricky because the the current i mean i'll give my answer and you can decide to use it or not but um